There's no better time to become a member of the DSR network. Later this month, we'll be announcing a major media partnership to our ever-expanding lineup of podcasts, bringing you even more insight and analysis than ever before. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the member-only Slack community, an evening newsletter recapping the day's top stories, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of October, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code SPOOKY at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code SPOOKY. Thank you very much for your support. Welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation and the editor of the English language version of The Insider. Um, apologies that it's been a while since our last episode. I've been traveling, um, but that's one of the reasons that we're doing this episode, because in my my latest exploits, admittedly not to any sort of foreign or exotic locale, but to Chicago, Illinois, I attended a conference on security force assistance for Ukraine at which I met a, a host of very interesting people who know a lot about um, stuff that basically this show has been delving into for the past two years uh, and work it professionally. Um, and before I introduce my guests, I just want to say that I was sat around a table with people who have names out of a Martin Amos novel, and I want to share some of them with you, even though they're some of the most brilliant people in the field of strategic studies and military affairs. We had one person, Alexandra Chinchilla, who's a PhD in one of the above, a guy called Nathan Toronto, who sounds like he just stepped off the stage of Guys and Dolls. And then we have my guest, Tony Tingle. I'm not <laughs> making that up. Tony Tingle, but don't let the name fool you. Evidently, the Russians refer to him as the Ukrainian Tingler, and I'm here to tell you why. So Tony, um, you'll see a s- snapshot of what he looks like um, in the teaser for this show. But Tony is the uh, program director at the Institute for Future Conflict at the U.S. Air Force Academy. Um, And we met initially uh, in a hotel room having drinks. And uh, he tells me he just got back from Ukraine. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I've been twice since the war, except that I have not been to Ukraine in the way that Tony has been to Ukraine. So he explained to me that he was recently in Bakhmut which those of you who listen to the show, I don't need to tell you what that experience must have been like or where that is. Uh, And even more provocatively than that, he had just returned from Robotnya, which is the town that the Ukrainians had liberated at great expense and after a great deal of time as part of their summer summer counteroffensive, rather. Uh, I don't know of any Westerner who's been to Robotnya, at least no journalist or anybody who's been there and back to tell the tale and to to write about it. And Tony opened up his iPhone and started showing me footage of incredible things that he saw embedded with Ukrainian troops. And I don't want to give too much of the game away because I want him to tell you all about it. Tony, uh, welcome to the show. Sorry about the shit I gave you for your name. But again, I was... (laughs) I was texting my wife. I'm like, you'll never believe, like, I'm looking at the nameplates around this conference table. And literally, we had a Nobel laureate was there. 
yeah. you know, tenured professors. This was at Northwestern. Uh, Frankie Matasek, who has been on the program, who's a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Air Force, who kindly invited me to this. Um, and it was like it was the best and the brightest in how do we train foreign armies and what kinds of military kit do we provide foreign ar armies? And there you are in a hotel room. He was like, I just got back from like <laughs> the most kinetic part of Europe right now. Yeah. And look at look at my iPhone. Look at the video that I shot. <laughs> and so I, people don't show. believe those pictures. Like what I can tell this. I'll tell the story about uh, um, when I went on the combat patrol with the uh, special forces, the Ukrainian special forces. But when I show people those pictures, they're like, that is insane. Yes. Because I, I have met Americans and British over there that are fighting. Uh, but I have not met uh, any academics or, you know, there's no government over there. There's no uh, government civilians or active duty from America, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, but, yeah, when when I show them those pictures, they're like, that's insane. I'm like, yeah, well, it, it, I learned a lot. So You learned a lot. You came back and you, you were very sober in your assessment. You said that, you know, there's a chance that Ukraine will lose this war if we don't provide them with everything that we've got right now. Um, yes. You you were very um, pessimistic about the view of Ukrainian morale and their mm -hmm. sense of doggedness that they're going to win this fight, that, that you know, there are obviously people are exhausted. They're afraid nerves. There's a sense of, you know, yeah. war fatigue. people have, have not been rotated out in a while. Yeah. I have a, I have a very pragmatic view of the end game of the war, mm -hmm. um, and and I think that's that's been developed through these in my travels around the country, talking to people, seeing everybody in the front lines, and and just looking at their faces, and it's they're so drawn out, they're so tired, um, so fatigued. Um, they're still more motivated than the Russians, obviously. I mean, they're they're fighting for their homeland, right? So, I mean, they're motivated. They're just tired and fatigued, and well, as to be expected. But then, yeah. but then you also offered this sort of shaft of optimism, which you described, and I think you've titled an article this that you you're, you you've written on spec, killing Russians for free. Yes. Please explain this, because yeah. as you know, I mean, in, in this country right now, and, and frankly, across Europe, this this pro-Ukraine coalition, there is this now congealing sense that we have spent far too much money supporting this country, even though in most instances, we're not giving cash, we're giving military equipment and ammunition mm -hmm. that is sitting where sat in warehouses and you know, yeah. in some cases expired bits of munitions, oh, yeah. such as attackums. But killing Russians for free is a very interesting and intriguing um, top line. Explain what it is that you mean and what you so, saw that informed so you are. I think you're right when you're talking about um, maybe material fatigue, uh, if you want to call it. Yeah. Uh, so, so a lot of the Western arms that we have given them are basically breaking down. Um, I talked to one artillery battery commander and this was just outside of uh Orakiv, so north of robo um he said he started with 12 paladins and he is down to two and there's a lot of reasons for that they're shooting it constantly they're changing over crews mm -hmm. uh, there's no accountability of local maintenance so they break down a lot faster 
but I I heard the same thing in May when I was uh, in the Bach Moot area. Uh, same thing I heard about M triple sevens. They're just breaking down. Uh, they're just wearing out, and the, Ukraine's going through them so fast. So right. the problem, as you just mentioned, the problem is that we're fretting over giving up our heavy arms to Ukraine when the U.S. is worried about a, a possible war with China. Uh, these things are breaking down. They cost money. Uh, we have political gridlock where half of the Republicans, at least, um, you know, outwardly, they're they're not so sure about uh, supporting Ukraine monetarily. So all these problems. And then we get to Ukraine and they're killing Russians for free. So the, basically they have um, I see it as two not uh, revolutions in military affairs. I get skewered if I use that term, but um, two changes in the character, recent changes in the character of war, which I didn't really get a feel in in the um, in the Donbas area for this. But uh, when I got to the southern area, the Zaporizhia Oblast, uh, it was a different. It felt like a different war uh-huh. to me because everybody was afraid. Um, they were afraid of these the first person view drones, which are these small racing drones that have uh, either a grenade attached to them or maybe a C4 type explosive. Uh, and they're doing a lot of damage and they go really fast. They fly about 120 kilometers an hour. And these, these are the state of the world kind of uh, low end uh-huh. uh, FPV drones. They're not the high, you know, the Dubai racing circuit drones um so so these are just things that they're buying from china and they cost 400 bucks a piece and they strap on a grenade and you can't really defeat them very well because they go so fast uh and they come in and they just uh you know they blow you up when you're not expecting it and this is what they're afraid of they're not afraid of snipers and they're not afraid of artillery as much as they're afraid of death from you know wherever uh-huh. uh, all at once but they give as good as they get because the ukrainians yeah. have their own fpv drones so yep. we saw a demonstration uh at this conference where and, and this is sort of it it gets at the heart of both the ukrainian capacity for engineering and and marvels and, and you know the, the ingenuity of their innovation but also their desperation so they've taken these drones as you mentioned and the detonation device to trigger the explosion in some cases are two kind of coiled copper wires mm-hmm. that it's, don't it's touch each other. Very precarious. Very precarious, very precarious when, operation. Yep. When the drone impacts, obviously the wires mesh together and that sets mm-hmm. off the charge and then boom. But there, there's a, you know, we heard a story about a small child, not a child, sorry, an 18 year old. I'm, right. But, you know, still a young person yep. who blew his hands and half his face off yeah. wiring these things together. So these yeah. things are being produced in mass, but it's not at an industrial level. You have civil society contributing to the war effort in this way. Right. right? So um, it's all volunteer. So yeah. at this point, it's all volunteer. So everything that they get, they've been given through donations or they've just been given these drones. Um, there is a there is a official government movement called the Army of Drones, mm-hmm. uh, and they are ramping up right now. But I don't think they have right now the capacity is insignificant compared to the drones that they've been given. 
But uh, yeah, it's a really uh, scary proposition. And if they don't hit the target, um, if they don't find a target, sometimes they bring these things back and they catch them with their hand. I saw a video of a guy catching one in midair with his hand. I'm like, that's crazy. And he with like said, a grenade or a mortar strap. Yeah, right. Yeah, because they didn't find a target. And it, he even said in the video, he's like, well, I'm scared right now. And uh, but, but now, costs, now I want you to paint a picture because I yeah. unfortunately we don't have a full video multimedia component here, so you can't just show your phone. Paint sure. the picture of what you saw in Robotnya, the, the killing Russians for free part. So basically, you saw yeah. Ukrainians using a thirteen thousand dollar recycling oh, yeah. drone, right? So, so that's that's probably yeah, that's probably the the other uh, branch of this uh, changing character of war for the drones. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I I got a call like five o'clock in the afternoon that the uh, a special police slash SSO, which is their special forces slash uh, SBU component, uh, th- this group uh, wanted to talk to me and they invited me uh, to go out on patrol uh, at 1130 at night. Uh, the curfew, uh, as you you know, is midnight now. Uh, but they invited me to go with them. So we met at a gas station right outside of Zaporizhia city, uh, beyond before the first checkpoint, when you leave the city and we're going into what they call the yellow zone, which is, um, I'm guessing it's about, uh, 20 miles or maybe a little less, mm-hmm. um, from the content line of contact, their zero line, um, the front line, basically. And what they had shown me at the gas station is they, they kind of gave me a preview of what we were, were going to be doing. They have a $13,000 quadcopter drone that is about the size of, you know, it's uh, half the size of a large desk, I guess, and half the size of a regular table. Um, and they had a 16 kilogram uh, one two two millimeter artillery round that they were they were going to drop from this drone and this so round is, is is a russian round right that they, they it's captured. right yeah, yeah. And that's that's part of the killing russians for free is they they commandeered all these artillery rounds in the the uh kharkiv counteroffensive last year because as you know the russians just left all their stuff right they, they left everything and ran so they have unlimited numbers of these these artillery rounds um and it it carries a pretty big punch it's it's four kilograms of explosive 16 kilograms total um and the concept of the operation is we go to the front line um we sneak into it was a burned out uh, blown out apartment building uh mm-hmm. it looked kind of like those pictures of Bakhmut where you see just the rubble um and we go to the top of the apartment building which was the seventh floor um, and then they launch the drones. It, it, the drone goes up a hundred meters and then it flies out. Yeah. Uh, I, I won't tell you how far it goes out because that's probably an operational thing for Ukraine. Uh, but it goes out past the front line. Um, and we hit a command, a Russian command post. Uh, it was about two o'clock at night in the middle of the night. And <laughs> 
throughout this operation, they'd been kind of, you know, telling me what was going on. They were showing me stuff on their, their little command center for the drone. Um, it was pretty much autonomous, locked in with GPS coordinates, and they apparently had no problem with GPS jamming. And um, so the drone goes up and they're like, okay, you got about 30 seconds until the bomb drops and it's in this vector. And for the most part, I had been hiding behind a concrete wall because I was afraid of snipers because the uh, we were by an open field and there was a Pasadka, which is the tree line mm-hmm. right there. And so I kept looking in the, you know, I'm like, I'm going to hide here. Uh, and they're like, no, come on. It's going to, it's going to go off. And I'm like, okay. So just this one time I'm, I had my iPhone out the window, seven floors up and I'm reaching and I'm trying not to drop my iPhone because I, but I want to get a video of this thing going off. Uh, and I don't want to get sniped, but, uh, they don't seem very concerned about it. Um, and they're like, okay, 10 seconds. And then when the bomb went off, it lit up the horizon. It was amazing. I was like, yeah. that was amazing. Uh, and then I scurried back to my hide, hide place. But, but the thing is, the drone itself, the $13,000 piece of hardware, returned. It returned. Base. Yep. So they didn't even lose this thing. It dropped a, a piece of yeah. ammunition that they had, as you said, confiscated from the Russians, having limitless supply, yep. blew up a command center. Yep. And the $13,000 piece of kit is still intact and being used again and again and again. Exactly. Kind of and, Most people think of drones as one of two things, right? The suicide drones or the reconnaissance drones. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that Russian air defense didn't know, detect this thing or shoot it mm-hmm. out of the sky. I mean, I guess it was under the cover of night, but even still is mm-hmm. sort of extraordinary. And this is how Ukraine is making up for its shortfall in air power, right? Yeah. Using so, these- so a couple of days later, they sent me on signal. They sent me a picture of the before and after. So apparently they flew a drone over it for battle damage assessment. They showed me a picture afterwards. And this command post was, it was a house before. And it was gone in the second picture, completely gone. I, I think I might have showed you the pictures. It was just bubble. Yeah. And, and the reconnaissance and, drone of the, that did the battle damage assessment flew in broad daylight. And that didn't get shot down either. Yeah, and that was probably a smaller, like a Mavic, right. what they call wedding drones, because right. they take wedding pictures. That was probably something like that. Um, but I asked them, what is your error rate, you know, of dropping the bomb in the Air Force? We call it the circular error probable. So how far from the actual center of the target? And they said about one meter. I'm like, that is amazing. That is better than JDAM, you know, US JDAM. Better than the Attackums era, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, especially now that yeah. uh, the Russians have started figuring out um, HIMARS uh, issues. But yeah, so it's on target every time. GPS resistant comes back, uh, costs $13,000 to destroy an entire Russian command post. And I'm like, how often do you guys do this? And they said, Every night, every night. So you, they're basically killing Russians for free. So mm. if you can imagine a, a, a Western security assistance support package that mm-hmm. either was money for mass producing these $13,000 drones. Again, you don't need the munitions because they have them for free. Yeah. Or that provided the infrastructure to build this on a grander industri- military mm-hmm. industrial scale. Yep. 
Ukrainians could have these things and essentially swarm Russian positions with them. And even if they lost half of them, they'd still have plenty because they keep manufacturing more and more and more. And you just yeah. described one mortar taking out an entire command center. Yeah, they they build these things in Western Ukraine, mm-hmm. and they're not state of the art. They they don't have carbon fiber fiber parts. Uh, they don't have great batteries. Um, so if they could, you know, economies of scale, if they could start making really good ones for the same price that they made a bunch of them, uh, these things could go farther. We wouldn't have to go right up to the front lines to launch them. Um, they could do some serious damage. Uh, not that they're not now, but um, yeah, there's a lot of room for improvement in this uh, technique, if you will. Well, so, you know, we, we we spent this weekend discussing what we are sending Ukraine. There was a lot of back and forth about the, the training efforts for combined arms warfare, which yeah. people who, again, do security force assistance for a living said the entire thing was cock-a-hoop. Like the United States, properly speaking, has not done combined arms maneuver in the way mm-hmm. that we teach it doctrinally since World War II. And here we are criticizing the Ukrainians through anonymous leaks to the New York Times and the Washington Post about yep. their inability to do what we cannot do or we have not done. Yeah. Um, and and yet you're describing a scenario, a kind of DIY form of conventional warfare, which is an adaptation to be sure, right? In the absence of F-16s mm-hmm. and parity of air power with the Russians, the Ukrainians sure. are going to have to have these workaround solutions. Let yeah. me ask you something. Are we just doing this incredibly backward or the wrong way? Should we be thinking in terms of technological innovation, cheaper but more eff- cheaper mass quantity but effective means of of allowing the Ukrainians to take it to the Russians? I think at the very least we should be including it yeah. as part of our package or considerations for combat power. Uh, you know our our military industry doesn't consider something that there's no profit margin. I mean, can you imagine why would Lockheed Martin or Boeing, why would they consider this? I mean, there's no profit margin. The FPV drones are $350 a piece. And this this other drone is 13000 And even if they made a million of them, there, there's no profit there. So it, there's probably a place for uh, the Air Force uh, and combined arms, clearly. But, um, you know, we have to at least consider these uh, low cost, I call it economics of killing. Mm. Um, it's clearly working for it, the Ukrainians. It seems to me that to, to uh, the, look, there, there's a large segment of the, the sort of populist right and and. I suppose you would call it the anti-imperialist left that's never going to support giving weapons or anything to Ukraine because they just don't care or they, in effect, want Russia to win. But to those who are kind of on the fence or who have to go back to their constituents and make the case that this is an enormous return on investment, even with what we've been doing so far with you know conventional artillery, HIMARS, air defense systems from NASAMs to Patriots, I mean, taking out 60 plus percent of Russia's combat effectiveness with what 4% of our annual spending is by any calculation, an incredible return on investment. But then to make the case that, oh, actually, if you want to start tallying up 
the billions and billions of dollars in Russian armaments and equipment that can be destroyed for the cost of not even $13,000 if these drones keep coming back, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. you, you know, you do it by proportion, like, we could be spending $10 million on on a, a, a system, or a number of systems that is responsible for destroying billions of dollars in Russian military hardware. Right. Um, that seems to me a, a fairly straightforward case to make. And, you know, even if, like you say, the military industrial complex in the United States sees no profit margin, what's to stop DOD directly or, I mean, Christ, CIA or our special services from doing these, these kinds of things, helping the Ukrainians build these manufacturing plants, buying the equipment, the machine tools, um, the, you know, you, you mentioned the lack of carbon fiber in these drones. Let's give them the ones with carbon fiber. Let's give them the ones with the longer battery life. Let's give them the ones that, that go, you know, X number of kilometers farther afield. You know, it, it, it seems like a very feasible workaround solution for at least one of the problems that Ukraine is facing at the moment, which is... Yeah, it seems very practical. And I don't know if the the specter of corruption that surrounds Ukraine in general is an yeah. inhibiting factor for something like this, where you're, you're basically trying to just give them money to buy things that they need. Right. And it, instead of... It, it's just safer for us to send them an Abrams tank for $5 million than to give them five hundred thousand dollars yeah there's no that. accountability that those monies and and there's a lot of uh you know well i mean it, you know we, trepidation. we started, we started yeah. um didn't we have this kind of like sort of franken drone that we manufactured it has some weird kind of mission impossible name like um phoenix something or other or whatever and it was it was basically a bespoke drone for ukraine sure we, phoenix goes phoenix goes right. yeah well, what's to stop the u.s from from making slightly more expensive versions of these thirteen thousand dollar drones and then just giving that to the ukrainians you know i mean it is true and you know no doubt at the end of this war we're going to be looking at mountains of corruption in, in other respects we've already seen bits of reporting about the defense mm -hmm. ministry and the, the food program and all the rest of it. But when it comes to hardware, you know, they have an existential war to fight. They're not selling this stuff on the black market. You know, they're not giving mm -hmm. it to Hamas like the Russians claim. That's all bullshit. If you give them the actual tools for only that can only be used for fighting, they're going to use it for fighting, or at least, yep. you know, by and large, you're not going to see a, a massive run on these things. So that would be a great idea. I, I sat down. <laughs> actually, I sat down with the CEO of the company that builds Phoenix Ghost. And that was last week. He just yeah. happened to become. He just happened to. He, I think he's an Air Force Academy graduate, mm -hmm. uh, and he he came by and uh, talked to the Institute for Future Conflict. Uh, and you know, the Phoenix Ghost is a kind of bespoke, like you said, um, drone. Where do it's a kamikaze, so it doesn't come back. And I think right. it costs about, don't quote me on this, but I think it costs about $50,000 a piece. Um, and it carries a, again, I'm not, I don't remember the specifics, but I think it's 1.8, uh, maybe max kilograms of explosives. So relative to explosive power. And I told them, you guys need to be making these bomber drones. Make a, make a big bomber drone that just comes back. Yeah. Um, 
and he he told me a story about the Ukrainians, and I didn't really follow this, and I didn't dig deep into it. But the Ukrainians didn't want the the high res camera on the Phoenix Ghost on during operations, and I don't know if that was electronic warfare, uh, opsec kind of thing that the Russians had tapped into. It. I don't know, but um, yeah, if we can make these things, even if it, even if we doubled the price of FPV drones and we made fifteen hundred dollar FPV drones and we made, you know, $30,000 heavy bomber quadcopters. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think we can make an impact. But the, there's there's just a mystery of, on how this presidential drawdown authority, uh, how the Ramstein group decides what Ukraine needs. Uh, it, I, I have a gut feeling that it's uh, three and four star Ukrainian generals that go to Ramstein and they 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 tell the U S what they think they need. And that's F 16s and Abrams tanks. And uh, when I talk to guys in the field, what they really need is 2000, $5,000, $10,000 thermal sites. That's what they need more than anything. And the, the question, it's always the same question. Where are the thermal sites? So, I, I mean, it was, it, it, this is kind of the perennial issue in war, uh, especially when it's war involving either directly or indirectly the United States. I mean, I remember reading stories from the second invasion and occupation, well, the, the second invasion, first occupation of Iraq about guys being sent into the field with with inadequate body armor, right? Mm-hmm. Like they had to ask their relatives back home oh, yeah. to go, go out mm-hmm. and buy this stuff at an army surplus store. I mean, it's... Yeah. A lot of what the Ukrainian army gets is uh, donated. So yeah. they'll they'll tell their relatives that they need body armor. And the, this is a story that I was told um, in Krematorsk, which is just west of, uh, due west of Bakhmut. And this was in May. I was told by these infantry guys, they said, look, our body armor is garbage. We take... When we kill Russians, we take their body armor, and we wear Russian body armor. And I'm just like, why? After and Russian body armor dollars, is notoriously garbage too, so that makes the body armor that it, started out with even worse. It must be relative. I I know I was I was wearing Ukrainian body armor in in the Robo area, and uh, I call it a like an armored sports bra because. It like you know came up halfway up my chest. I'm like, I got to bring my own stuff from now on. Yeah. Uh, it's just terrible. And the, you know, yeah. it's like I I don't understand that we can we can spend billions of dollars and we can't get them the cheap stuff like rain, you know, mylar uh, rain uh, ponchos and and cheap stuff that they need. Uh, better uniforms, boots. And, you yeah. know, I, I kind of had this like, what what Ukraine needs is a volunteer corps of Midwestern CPAs like my father-in-law to just descend upon Kiev mm-hmm. and basically do spot checks and inventory of all the things they have, mm-hmm. what they don't have, what it's cost, where yeah. the money is going or not going. And we had that for it. Afghanistan. Right. And I think maybe... In the final analysis, when they realized how much graft and and missing money went through Afghanistan, maybe they're a little 
cautious this time to, yeah. to I, I don't understand why we don't have it. Well, I mean, you know, we, we you spoke know. to the um, the military, uh, the, I'm sorry, the defense attache mm-hmm. in the embassy in D.C., um, who said that, you know, part of the problem that Kiev has faced is what has been called Afghanistan syndrome, which is right. the U.S., should not do security force assistance or security assistance of any kind because it's all going to wind up going down this sinkhole. But mm-hmm. in Ukraine's case, again, notwithstanding what will come to light at the end of this war in terms of corruption or money siphoned off the top, in Ukraine's case, one, they fight a hell of a lot better than the Afghan army ever fucking did. Mm-hmm. Two, they are facing, I mean, in Afghanistan, one could couch it as more of a civil war, you know, forces that we trained up fighting against the Taliban, which is a native, uh, you know, domestic insurgency. In mm-hmm. this case, it's foreign invasion, war of conquest and genocide. They don't have time to screw around in this respect, right? It's like right. if they want to go steal or sell things on the black market, that means their their mother, their father, their wife, their brother, sister is going to likely get killed or taken mm-hmm. hostage. Yeah. So there's a there's a, a you know a, a, a matter of urgency and necessity that comes into play here. And look, we can sit and criticize you know plenty, but it it has been an, a remarkable transformation from debating whether we should provide stingers and end laws and javelins to now literally as we speak, Ukrainians are are flying F sixteen airframes in Arizona. Yeah, um, I think. I think we're going to look, I think we're going to look back on this war decades from now and be like, what in the world were we thinking? If we were going to do this anyways, um, why didn't we just give them everything all at once and, uh, and be done with it? Um, Let me, let me put it to you um, because, you know, again, I, I know the debate and I don't agree with the premise of the debate in many respects, but what do you think is our capacity? for sending, I mean, right now we're talking about scale and quantity of things that we've already committed, right? There's very little on the Ukrainian shopping list that they haven't received. In fact, I can think of only one, the the Australian Hawkeye armored vehicle, um, which I'd never heard of before the Ukrainians started asking for it, is the one mm-hmm. thing that I could think that they haven't got, but everything else from Abram. Um, yeah, they haven't got the, the Taurus cruise missile. They the Taurus, haven't got- that's right. Yeah. They haven't got larger, like the Predators and the Reapers. They haven't got the large Hellfire drones. Right. But, you know, the, the bulk of what they wanted, they've yeah. got. So now it's mm-hmm. about, you know, um, sustainment and maintenance and more, more, more. Um, yeah. What do you think that the United States can spare that it's not sparing? What do you make of the argument that if we empty our stocks of these things that, you know, should the Chinese invade Taiwan tomorrow. That's yeah, too. I mean, what, well, what? I mean, I, I don't know off the top of my head how many armored brigades that we have in the U.S. Army, but I'm just wondering how many of those are going to be island hopping in a war in the South China Sea. I mean, how easy it to, is it to just transfer tanks from island to island? Uh, I think it would make logistics in Ukraine a lot easier if we just said, we're going to give you a bunch of Abrams. No no Challengers, no Leopards. We're just going to give you a bunch of Abrams tanks. We're going to give you a thousand of them and just go at it. And uh, I I think that's what we should have done. 
I, I guess maybe we're afraid of losing Abrams and uh, its impact on national prestige uh, in our in our armor industry. I don't know, but really, it we, seems like we, the, it seems like the things you know we we all remember now the notorious fiasco of the forty seventh in uh, Zaporizhia sure. at the start of the summer counteroffensive. Yeah. They lost lost quote unquote several U U S provided armored vehicles, Bradleys, yep. uh, et cetera, except most of them were not destroyed. They were damaged. Mm -hmm. I think it, I, I have to check and I, I haven't in, in a while, but most of the kit was eventually recovered and repaired. Yes. Yep. So it's like, okay, you know, American armor is doing what American armor was designed to do, which is a protecting Ukrainian lives. Well, mm -hmm. the lives of the soldiers who, who are inside the, the vehicle um, and two, they're not so easily knackered. Like they can get dinged up, they can get damaged, but they can also be fixed in a way that Russian tanks cannot, and you know, Russian armored yeah. vehicles cannot. Right? Yeah, they call the, the you know they call the Russian uh, BMP. They call it a metal casket. Right. Um, they they love the Bradley. Uh, the things that they mention the most that they love, they they love the javelin. They love the stinger. And they love the Bradley. And what is it about they, the Bradley that they love? That they're just, keeping it's them alive? Just, yeah, the protection. It, the, some of those guys at Malatak Machka uh, in that fateful assault, uh, the 47th Mech mm -hmm. Brigade's assault, um, they, I was told a story uh, about that, that famous picture where you see the, the Bradley and the Bradley, and then I think it's a, a Challenger tank or no, Leopard the Leopard. Tank. Celebrity. Yeah. yeah. And then and then another couple armored vehicles all in a row. Um <clears throat> they said that there were guys trapped in Bradley's right there for six hours, taking RPG rounds intermittently for six hours until nightfall. And then it got dark, they dropped the hatch and they ran away. And, and then later came and recovered the vehicle. Yeah, yeah, they came and got most of those vehicles. So isn't out it amazing? Because you know, the Russians made ample propaganda usage of this you know early oh yeah but really yeah. i mean you know these guys would have been dead if they were in soviet era emps mm -hmm. or whatnot but oh, they're yeah. alive today because of u.s security assistance because we sent bradley's right yeah yeah and i i feel like i mean i don't have the exact numbers but i feel like we could send them a lot more bradley's we could send them a lot more abrams tanks and uh let them go at it yeah, well, they're getting now what upwards of thirty Abrams. They have, uh, I think, the number is thirty-one Abrams that are currently in Ukraine. As of I don't know. I mean, maybe it, it's hard to kind of weed through the morass of crap on Twitter at the moment, especially given the conflagration in the Middle East, uh, which we haven't talked about. Mm -hmm. Maybe we should in terms of what that's going to do for the prospects of, of this war and how it might be resolved. Um, but I haven't really seen Abrams in action. Have you, I mean, do we know anything about how they're being deployed or where they're being deployed? No idea. No idea. I can, I can only guess that they're going to be very cautious with the Abrams. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think it would look good for Western specifically U S support. If there's a bunch of Abrams tanks that get blown up. I can imagine they're going to be 
as far back as they possibly can and still make some kind of minute contribution to the war effort. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you are, as I mentioned, a program director at the Institute for Future Conflict. And one future conflict, I, we should end on on this note to adjust track, is the perspective, if not inevitable, ground invasion by the mm-hmm. IDF into Gaza. Yeah. Um, are you following this closely? Do you have any thoughts on what to expect? I, I am following it. Um, I think... Um, a lot of people are following it and um, wondering uh, how heavy-handed is the land component of this assault going to be. It looks like the, um, I mean, the the softening up with the the uh, Israeli Air Force. It, they, they've really, um, I it's not indiscriminate, but uh, they have bombed a lot of stuff, and uh, I think that. Uh, the IDF component of this is probably going to, you know, the, with the tanks and the the infantry, it's probably going to look a lot like uh, Mosul in Iraq. Uh, they're probably going to have to go house to house very cautiously. Um, if the Iranians and Hamas have been paying attention to Ukraine at all, um, we should see a lot of these FPV drones coming out of nowhere, coming out of basements, uh, coming out of hide spots. and. Uh, hitting Merkava tanks uh, pretty much all day. Checkpoints, uh, groups, small groups of infantry patrols. Uh, it should be, um, if they can get, if Hamas can get the logistic trail, you know, get these things through tunnels or however they do it, um, it should, it might be really nasty for the the Israelis. Well, there seems to be some reluctance on the part of Netanyahu and his war cabinet to commit to this. I mean, he he came out mm-hmm. and said that there's a date that's been set, didn't give an indication as to what that date may be. Yeah. But now you're starting to see things like, well, maybe what we're mm-hmm. going to do is a series of raids like the two mm-hmm. that have already taken place, yeah. special operations, uh, but not a full scale ground assault. Um, yeah. I, I think they're, they're cautious. I think they want to continued negotiations to release some hostages before they go in uh, guns right. blazing but well i mean look you know the the i was discussing this with um mark palmeropoulos um who's also been on the show uh and has his own podcast on the deep state radio network and he said that the battle of mosul which was considered a victory in terms of counterterrorism effort and as part of operation inherent resolve counter isis mission uh, incurred 10,000 civilian casualties Mm-hmm. And from the air, I mean, I know this has become a contentious issue. How can we credit casualties and fatalities uh, on the Palestinian side, given the health ministry is run by Hamas and all that? Mm-hmm. Human rights organizations say actually those numbers do tend to be accurate as best they can check after the fact. But whatever, mm-hmm. we're looking at around 7,000 mm-hmm. civilian casualties thus far, mm-hmm. just an air yeah. campaign and not the kind of house to house urban combat that you're yeah. describing. I mean, you know, this could be a humanitarian catastrophe in addition to uh, a real meat grinder for the Israelis as well. Yeah, it, it in the final analysis, it probably already is. Uh, yeah. If you if you look at, I think the number I read uh, this week was Israel has already destroyed twenty five percent of the living 
spaces of Palestinians in Gaza just in the, the last couple of weeks uh, through bombing. Um, I, I can't imagine the casualty numbers are not just outrageous bigger right than now. what we're hearing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But well, then, you know, you, you I, I know that it, it, it becomes um, fraught with uh, with implication when you say things like this. But, you know, Hamas also does hide behind civilian infrastructure. I mean, oh, yeah. it's, yeah, it's yeah, not even an open secret. It's now been yeah. established or or publicized that the Hamas leadership is basically in the basement of Al-Shifa Hospital, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they've been there forever. So yeah. you can imagine where we're go- you're, the Israelis are going to encounter, um, you know, their military positions, uh, civilian, no, a, you know. Right. It's a, it's, a, it's a perennial balance between operational efficiency right. and um, protecting human life. So if the IDF wanted to protect their soldiers on the ground, well, they would just have a scorch earth uh policy and just anything that moved in a window you just blow it up whether it's a kid or a sniper uh but you can't do that you got to balance you got to balance human life and uh, collateral damage with operational efficiency so I, I don't think it serves israel in the long run uh to have a, a heavy-handed response mm-hmm. i think in the long run it's going to hurt them uh clearly diplomatically it's already it's already taken a bite yeah. on Israel. So and it seems like the um I mean I don't know how accurate or credible the the polling is that I saw today, which suggests that almost half of the population, which for understandable reasons given what happened uh, three weeks ago was was baying for blood, almost half of the population in Israel now is actually against a full scale ground invasion of of Gaza. Probably for the reasons that you say. They don't want to see, sure. you know, military aged men and women getting chewed up in this thing. Um, yeah, that, and they don't want to see it escalate to the West Bank. I mean, there's right. already some signs that uh, people in the West Bank are getting frisky, so they they mm-hmm. definitely don't want to see it boil over to that part of Israel. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's in the end, at the end of the day, it's going to be a no-win situation for everybody. If Even if they eradicate Hamas from Gaza, uh, you know, so it seems like lot. something that is going to be very, very difficult, if not impossible to do, given that, you know, I mean, Hamas can smuggle themselves out of Gaza, right? Yeah. Hamas has cells in the West Bank. I mean, this is a movement that will persist in some fashion or other. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a there's a good chance, depending on what Egypt does. Um, yeah there's a good chance that they could eradicate Hamas out of Gaza, but they're, like you said, they're not going to destroy Hamas. They're going to be in the West Bank. Well, I mean, you know, we, we've been in Iraq and Syria for, since 2014. So, you know, almost a decade uh, fighting against a terror group that it was degraded and then it was quote unquote destroyed. Mm-hmm. But sure. I mean, ISIS thrives in the refugee camps in the Jazeera ISIS thrives on the battlefield in some respects, particularly in areas that are controlled by the Assad regime in Syria, which has a a counterterrorism capacity about as good as the Afghan army that we trained. Um, ISIS is not eradicated. Strategically, it's defeated, but it still exists. And we're not even occupying, you know, all of Syria and Iraq, right? So how the Israelis... You you can kill kill the the fighters, but unless you... 
do something about the ideology, you know, there's there's going to be more. And in Hamas's case, yeah. it's even more difficult, arguably, because they have extensive state backing by Iran. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the weapons can flow, you know, the personnel can be retrained, the money is there. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I, there are no good answers for this. Uh, and unfortunately, people in the West don't like it when you say there's no answer to your question. But in this case, I, I, I don't know. Um, if yeah, if they continue on, it's it's just kind of it's kind of like Ukraine. There's always that risk of escalation, and if we see this spill over to Jordan, um, you know, it's going to be really bad for the U.S. Since since we let's finish the, on this this yeah. question of how what happens in the Middle East doesn't stay in the Middle East, but may affect fortunes in Europe. Meaning, you know, what is the impact it's going to have on? the war in Ukraine. Well, just look, open, yeah, right. Open the uh, Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and, and in the international section when you used to see every every day something about Ukraine. Today, there was nothing about Ukraine. It was yeah. all about Israel. So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm of a divided mind myself about this because on the one hand, bad news out of Ukraine also gets suppressed. So being distracted there are pluses and minuses, right? Ukrainian victories. I mean, the, the provision of attackums, which I had friends, I had people ready to do a ticker take parade down Fifth Avenue the minute these things turned up in the field. And yeah. I was frantically on signal chats when, you know, Berdyansk was hit and the other mm-hmm. airfield was hit. What was this? You know, is it is it true? Can it be? Can it be? You know, the <laughs> prophecy is fulfilled. And, you know, Everyone kind of was cheering in their own little silos, but this was not a one of the New York Times. And, you know, one of the arguments that was being made to the U.S. government about why you ought to send these things is the counteroffensive is not going in the way that it it was meant to go, certainly not as quickly. Very grudging or or slow grinding um, progress. If not, now it's culminated. I don't know. Um, But giving attackums kind of flips the script a bit. And suddenly there's enormous goodwill from the Ukrainian side. Thank you. You've finally given us the, the means or the, the tool that we have been begging you for, which will make a difference in terms of hitting air defense systems. And I mean, Christ, in the case of, of the first sortie, taking out, I've seen claims somewhere between like 18 to 24 helicopters destroyed or mm. damaged. Alligators, yeah. right? Which is yeah. like almost well, a third I, of their- No, they weren't all alligators. They were- Oh, alleg- yeah, that's right. So some yeah, of them were alligators were, and some were some um, hips and yeah. Um, um, anyway, the point yeah. is, it, it was a massive yeah, a massive uh, you know um, hammer blow to I guess army aviation on the Russian side. Yeah. Um, and again, it just crickets because nobody was paying yeah. attention to this. They were all looking to the Middle East. I think so. I, I think the Ukrainians are almost done combat wise i think by this time next year uh they will have culminated hopefully before they culminate they will get to the sea of azov and and split the russian forces in order for them to even do that um we have to keep this on the top of everybody's head i mean it's got to be it has to be in the news cycle um have to keep the pressure on uh Proponents in Capitol Hill have to keep uh, the money flowing, um, and it does not look good, uh, even from a just a political 
standpoint with the with the gridlock in Washington right now. Mm. Uh, looks like Michael Johnson wants to separate the separate the Israel funding from the Ukrainian funding, and he's he's not a yeah. Ukrainian proponent, and so um, there there are a lot of dark what ifs. Yeah, staring you know at us in the face, but frankly speaking, you know there were a lot of dark what ifs staring us in the face on February 23rd of 2022. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I've heard the same thing that, you know, there'll be, it it would be a miracle for them to take Tokmak before real winter sets in. We agree, probably that's not going to happen, but now people are looking to next spring in terms of, well, well, they won't, they won't take Tokmak. That would be suicide. They're going to isolate it and bypass it and keep moving. Uh, try to push out their flanks so they don't get uh, encircled. But um, yeah, I I wouldn't count. I'm not counting the Ukrainians out. I I just think that there's going to come a point in the next year um, where they're going to reach their crescendo in this war, and they need to. We need to be prepared to, um, you know, push uh, them to take advantage of that leverage when they have it, because the Russians are catching up fast. Yeah. They're, they're adapting. They're putting their economy on a war footing. They've got plenty of sanction-busting uh, procedures with China and North Korea and Iran. So we just have to be prepared for when that time comes. The Ukraine, you know, takes advantage of that leverage when they have it before mm-hmm. they lose it. Okay. Well, Tony, always a uh, always a play. I say always. We, we've spoken three times <laughs> as is, I speak in cliches now but no it's great to, to have you on man I, yeah. I really enjoyed meeting you and uh yeah I mean it's you know you're this like unassuming guy and all of a sudden you're like hey I, I just got back from you know the most violent and dangerous part of the world right now and look at all this cell phone footage I took of it. yeah <laughs> it well it's it, it's it's painful it's arduous to travel all that all that way. It's dangerous, but the things that I have learned about the war and the perspective that I have uh, talking to everybody that just comes out of the field and they're willing to tell me the truth. At least I think it's the truth. And um, I wish we just had more advisors over there and more people to, to gather all this intelligence and information and uh, perspective. Well, you know, that, that was another kind of interesting Um, side discussion at the conference, which was why are the Brits so bullish and so forward-footed on sending things to the Ukrainians, including, I mean, they gave storm shadows, right, which was kind of a Mm -hmm. damn moment, arguably facilitated the conversation about attackums. And I think the most convincing answer I heard was, well, the Brits have a footprint in Ukraine in a way that, that we do not. I mean, they're much more um, bold in their um, direct liaison with the Ukrainian military. I mean, they've got more SAS soldiers in the field. Um, I mean, special operators than any other country, I think. Second is yeah. Norway, and that's mostly, I think, to guard like diplomatic facilities. And then there's, we have nobody, right? I mean, the 10th group was like pulling out in February you know, training up the Ukrainian army and they just, they, that was it game over. Yeah. So, and you can't really remote control this kind of thing. You have to be there. You have to see it. 
you have to kind of taste it. You have to talk to and and embed with the people that are are fighting because it becomes too academic otherwise, right? Yeah, uh, right. I mean, it would benefit the Ukrainians, but I think it's going to benefit the the U.S. military to have some of these lessons learned if mm-hmm. if we do get in some kind of conflict in the next uh, couple of years. It'd be nice yeah. to. It'd be nice to understand what the electromagnetic spectrum is doing in Ukraine right now. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, so yeah. Um, anyways, well, it was nice talking to you, this Tony is- Tingle, my 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 friend in Chicago, um, or actually Colorado Springs. But you're yeah. you're now you're you're I associate you with Chicago for better or for worse. <laughs> oh great! <laughs> All right, man. Hey, Mike. Uh, You've been listening to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations for the Russia Foundation and editor of the English language version of The Insider. My guest this week, uh, Tony Tingle, Program Director of the Institute for Future Conflict at the U.S. Air Force Academy. And I'd say we'd see you next week, but I don't know if it'll be next week. We'll see you again soon, though. Thanks very much. Bye. Bye.